Restart. Be Real is presented by California College of the Arts MFA in Writing Program. Getting an MFA at their art school setting in San Francisco means you can paint and write, design and write, and make a film and write. You can also just write. Look for their faculty member Leslie Carroll Roberts' critically acclaimed Here is Where I Walk, Episodes from a Life in the Forest, out now from University of Nevada Press, and Adam Nemetz, We Can Save Us All, from Unnamed Press. For more information, power on your computer and visit cca.edu slash writing MFA. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life Be real! Welcome, one and all, to your movie-reviewing, reappraising, genre-hopping, career-retrospectiving podcast on the Playlist Podcast Network. This is Be Real. My name is Chance Solem Pfeiffer. And I'm Noah Ballard. Buddy, we're here to talk about a career that spanned, well, life that spanned over a century, and uh, a career that spanned 90-some films uh, in that of... Kirk Douglas. Absolutely. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Douglas. Just passed away on, on February 5th of 2020. At the age of 103. My God. Let me ask, can I give you a trivia question here? Do you know what Please. movie won Best Picture at the Oscars the year Kirk Douglas was born? Uh, who knows? I, I don't know. There were no Oscars. The man, wow. of course, lived has been was alive 11 more years than the oscars were around we've gathered here to talk about one of the iconic golden age of hollywood careers we're going to cover five kirk douglas movies uh, under the auspices of these being his five best performances i don't know if that's totally true we'll uh we'll talk about it i think but they are among his most notable titles and uh certainly some of them contain the most famous acting he's ever done and some of them have like the biggest uh, commercial lasting whatever in terms of how he's continued to be marketed today, I think. And then at the end, for 25 minutes, I will talk about Man from Snowy River. You cool with that? That sounds fine. Of course, before we start the full-on retrospective, thank you as always to the Playlist Podcast Network for hosting Be Real. Check out our sibling shows like The Fourth Wall, The Discourse, and Indie Beat, and subscribe to the Playlist Podcast Network feed wherever you get your shows, whether that be Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, what have you. Leave us a comment and a kind rating, if you would. As always, we appreciate your support. Okay, but we're going to talk about uh, Ace in the Hole, Bad and the Beautiful, Paths of Glory, Spartacus, and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's, that, that is what we're doing. So you made his film debut in the mid-40s in The Strange Love of Martha Ivers with, was a Barbara Stanwyck movie and acted pretty well through the 90s, I believe, right? What was his last movie? He was in that It Runs in the Family thing with him, Michael, and uh, what's his name? The grandson, Cameron. He retires in 1996 after a stroke kind of impedes his his acting ability. But uh, how did you think about Kirk Douglas' chance, uh, like when he passed, when we decided to do this episode? 
Um, I thought of him in a lot of ways as a blind spot in my film watching uh, history. Because I had only seen, I, I think I, we determined that the only two movies I had fully seen that starred him were Man from Snowy River, which is an 80s horse picture that is not that famous, and uh, Gunfight at the OK Corral, which is a late 50s Western in which he plays Doc Holliday. Um, so I, this was a first for me on all of these. That's funny where it's like the Venn diagram of classic American cinema and like Chance's interest in Doc Holliday as a character. Like only <laughs> link over this one movie in which yeah. Kirk Douglas incidentally stars. I am eminently qualified to do this show. Yeah. You want no, to talk about Tombstone? Well, what about you? I have to admit that it's somewhat similar to you, Chance, in that like I know him. I know him through for 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which was like a, one of my most worn out VHS tapes as a child. I love that fun fact. And I've seen, I saw Ace in the Hole in college, Out of the Past. It's like one of my favorite noir movies. You do love it. Uh, but I didn't really know him. Like I hadn't seen the Vincent Van Gogh one. I hadn't seen Spartacus. Um, so... After watching all these, though, and doing our research, and we we poured it on, uh, watching clips and stuff, trading clips back and forth, what is our... Do we have an overarching theory of Douglas we want to pitch before we get going? I think... Well, you, Chance, before we started recording, you were testing out your Kirk Douglas uh, impression, which is terrible. And... But you did hit on the what I want to talk about when we talk about Kirk Douglas. He wants to is, talk about the chin. He, I want to talk about the chin, uh, and I think like the chin both like puts him so like so very much in like the center of the frame and any everything he's in, and like you can't look away from him. But that's also like somewhat to his detriment, I think, in certain performances. Okay. You know, when you're trying to get him away from that sort of like showy starring man, lead role, right. alpha type, he, like it's hard for him to play anything less. And he'll he'll learn to grow facial hair at some point in his career. But I think the performances are very much tied to the physical look of them and how he's able to move his face in a way that I don't know that people had done before. Sure. I think that to expand from chin outward. I'm with you. I agree. Um, the thing I couldn't help but notice in all these, and it correlates with this idea of Douglas as one of the first sort of, you know, major actor producers, like having a lot of authorial control, like as a producer over his movies and like that causing fights with people like Stanley Kubrick, but it also goes into him uh, and the mythos around him. So breaking the blacklist, we can talk about that. Um, but yeah, the thing I kept noticing in these movies is there's a total, I'm going to call it an immodest modesty to all of the performances. And you just sent me the video of him winning the AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. And his hum, his humility is such a charming put on, but he's not a humble person. And that's what comes across in all of these movies. Like all of these characters make mistakes. They're egotistical. Some of them are super flawed. Um, but it all channels back to movie star worship. 
Absolutely. And that transcends his performances too. Like if you see interviews with him, he like buys into the American movie lore that like movies are supposed to say something larger about the world in which we live and do some good for the people who see them. And that is such a weighty bygone way of thinking about cinema in a lot of ways that it's so seeing a starring man who believes in his own myth so much is like, it's sort of fascinating. (laughs) You know, for years I proclaimed loudly that a movie must be good entertainment. No messages for me, but I've changed. It must in some small way touch and improve humanity. When we think about Spartacus, like that's definitely like the forerunner for like a Braveheart, right? The idea that somebody oh, 100%. would marshal all the resources in their own mind, break the blacklist, and then cast themselves as a mythical hero slave. Um, a seemingly perfect character. A seemingly perfect pre-Jesus-like character, yeah. yeah. It's so funny that like Dalton Trumbo, to be welcomed back into Hollywood, had to participate in such a vain picture as this. Sure, sure. Like People don't think about the sacrifice that that individual made working with Kirk Douglas <laughs> in this long, bloated... We'll get to it. I was listening to uh, an episode of You Must Remember This, uh, Karina Longworth's wonderful golden age of hollywood history podcast and she talked about how kirk douglas like absolutely like took credit in autobiography and then in a separate book for breaking the blacklist when in reality like otto preminger was also like probably a week out from uh giving dalton trumbo like credit in a movie um but Kirk like boils it down to this moment where he gives trumbo a parking pass to the studio lot under his own name and it's, again, it's immodest modesties. Like, I had no idea at that moment that I was breaking the blacklist, doing something incredibly special. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, uh. yeah. So you're, like, pretending unawares with this small gesture, but, like, now you're writing an autobiography in which you're saying that you <laughs> changed this era. Little did I know how important this moment would be for Hollywood <laughs> and for me. Kirk Douglas. Yeah, it's Kirk Douglas alive. Oh, my God. Um, That's certainly true, but it's funny how the movie and the characters in these movies also, like, boil down to this guy that, I don't know, it's like you feel like deep down he's a good person. There's this really interesting speech that Steven Spielberg gave introducing Kirk Douglas to receive his Lifetime Achievement Award in the 19, what was it, 96 Oscars and he had just had the stroke and he comes on, he like references his son and his wife and doesn't really say much more than thank you. Um, but in Spielberg's speech, he talks about Kirk Douglas has never taken a character without a conscience. And that's such an interesting th- way to put like the roles that he plays is that every one of them in moments earned and unearned, he will like grapple with the weight of deciding to do the thing his character must do for the movie to continue. And that's actually funny. I think we're going to start with Ace in the Hole. And that's the character who you say, that character doesn't have a conscience. But then when you think about the plot beats, some of the most interesting moments come from him putting his foot down on his own scam. He's like, we're not going that far with it. Can we talk about two more things before we get into the films? Um, 
first, the back part of Kirk Douglas's career is pretty weird. It's a wasteland. Yeah, it's a wasteland after Spartacus. He gets a little more into production, I guess. You know, he's in an Ilya Kazan movie, The Arrangement, in 69. Um, he kept working with good directors. Worked with Frankenheimer, Seven Days in May, in 64. But um, I just feel like if you look at Spartacus, which we'll get to last, it really does signal a kind of... I don't know. It's like how far this kind of star power can go when your goal is just to like relish in the star power in the old sort of Hollywood system, because he's, he's kind of a funny star who's famous for breaking this idea of studios owning actors. But then when he got out of the studio system, he wanted to still make big budget studio pictures. And of course, like Spartacus is a notorious example of like, one of these disaster productions that, yeah, I mean, managed to pull it off, but like not in many ways, it is like a brave heart where like, where do you go from there as a, both a producer and a star, but it's almost like he hands off. And this is my bigger, my bigger takeaway about the legacy of Kirk Douglas in leading men in 2020 What up, baby? is that he hands off his own legacy to a Michael Douglas, sure, but B the spiritual successor to the Kirk Douglas man in movies is, of course, Matthew McConaughey. You said this before we watched any of the movies, and I was like, yeah, right. And then I proceeded to watch him pop his shirt off and be so tan in every single one of these movies. There's this line from the movie that I love, uh, Out of the Past, that I feel like is probably also a Matthew McConaughey line. Uh, when advising uh, the detective on the case, the, looking tracking down this woman, Kirk Douglas, who like needs to find her immediately, goes, "Take it easy, take your time." <laughs> and it's like that's such a all right, all right, all right, right. I so yeah, the difference I think is marijuana, but in terms of suntan, blonde hair, and oh my god, build, you got it. He's always, like, has the ability to, like, finesse a situation. Yes. And, like, McConaughey has that, too, if there's a bit. If there's a guy trapped in a mountain pass and, like, you only have a week to, like, make as much money off of him as possible, like, how would you do it? Like, fire right now or we die. McConaughey would be incredible in 2020 Ace in the Hole. He'd be amazing. All right. What else? Oh, wait. His Can we, can we objectify him for a second? Please. His body and you could say the same of Burt Lancaster's body whatever it was that the men the strong like pop the shirt off men of that age were doing the sort of like the muscles underneath the pecs (laughs) where it's just like they would maybe had never been in a gym in their lives but had like won a push-up contest circa age like 17 or it was like oh I got this this." is war this is world war ii bod yes this is like what the (laughs) It is so funny that they all kind of look like Batman figurines. Right. They have these like big, yeah, big chests. And these tiny little waists. Sloped down. Yeah, it's sloped down into this tiny little waist. (laughs) I'm just imagining like the men's health YouTube video for Kirk Douglas. And they're like, so Kirk, like, what's your training regimen? It's like, well, (laughs) whiskey instead of lunch. And then 
from the ages of like 15 to 25, you just got to go play baseball, hit the cover off the ball with your friends. <laughs> right. It's like, yeah, skip breakfast, do a thousand push-ups, drink through lunch, eat two Denver omelets, <laughs> and repeat. That is... Never did a sit-up and no sit-ups, no ab work. Great, weird body that no one would ever have today. Incredible. <laughs> Definitely a great, weird body. And then, like, you really get no sense of his lower body, though, because the pants they wear in all these movies are so baggy as to reveal absolutely nothing. Well, and they're all worn at the belly button. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Looking like Joaquin Phoenix and her in all these movies. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I wish the the high waist would go back. Would come you think back. So? That'd be good. I'm counting on it. My hips are <laughs> counting on it. <laughs> on that note, should we talk about these movies in order let's do it ace in the hole 1951 beneath this sinister mountain a man is buried alive trapped by a cave-in and from every part of a shocked and anxious nation the crowds stream to watch the desperate rescue crews fighting against time battering their way to the barrier of solid rock while far below a daring reporter makes his way into the treacherous crumbling tunnel that is the only lifeline between the helpless victim and the outside world You'll be out of here by tomorrow morning. No, I won't. I'll never reach me by tomorrow morning. You'll be out of here in 12 hours. Hang on! Kirk Douglas has his greatest role as the reporter who would do anything for a story. A Billy Wilder film. So this comes after Double Indemnity and Lost Weekend for the Wilder scholars out there, but before Sunset Boulevard and Stalag 17. So, I mean, just like peak, peak pre-Marilyn Monroe comedy Wilder. Your basic synopsis is that Kirk Douglas is a alcoholic question mark journalist who is towed into Albuquerque, New Mexico in his own broken down car. Um, a journalist who's been fired from every higher up position of journalism. And he rolls into the office of the, uh, what's the paper called? The Albuquerque Sun Bulletin. And is basically like, I'll work for pittance. I'm just going to break a story till I get out of here. I'm a, I'm a New York hotshot who's fucked up all the way to this level. Um, the nice editor-in-chief is just like, you don't have to degrade yourself. I'll give you a normal job. Spends a year toiling away. Goes out to cover a rattlesnake hunt. And on the way, <laughs> finds that this man who lives with his sad wife at this trading post and steals indigenous artifacts from inside the mountain of the seven vultures um, is caught in there. And a media circus uh, that presages baby Jessica and the Chilean miners ensues. And Chirk Chuck Tatum, the Kirk Douglas character, ends up kind of wielding all the power as he strives for journalist journalistic exclusivity and to make a bunch of money and to get himself, you know, leapfrog this whole incident into a, a higher paying job in a different city. Well, that's what I thought was so interesting about the setup to this movie is that it reflects very much the culture I feel like a lot of journalists are in right now, where if they can find staff work, it's in much smaller markets. And what they do to sort of rise within those ranks is break a story. And I mean, maybe it's converted a bit more to like political scandal lately, but he's still operating in the media market 
the way that a contemporary journalist would be. This is one of the more interesting conversations around the movie. I found it so fascinating to read the reviews of this movie when it came out, and people hated it because they yeah, were people like, it's, panned it. So it was it's so too, cynical. Too cynical. Um, basically portrays the corruption of the fourth estate and American politics as it's just like, how, how dare you degrade them? How dare you portray them this way? And of course what happens <laughs> is that this movie looks better and better and better. The more that journalism uh, is eroded into not being a steady middle-class career. But it does poke at that question too of, the ethics of journalism as they stand too. Mm -hmm. Like how can you possibly have a newspaper that is driven by like ad sales? How could they ever possibly report the news in an ethical way? So I am going to come right out and say that I think this is the best performance of any of the five we're talking about today. And who do I want to say this? I think it's the best movie too. It's the one I like the most. Um, and I think what's so interesting is that you have Kirk marshalling all of his movie star charm into winning over this kind of bored, dusty newsroom. And there, there's like there's a great scene where he just goes around, is talking about New York and how much he wants to get out of here. And the rookie photog is like. Is this another one of your long plays? Is this a Chuck Tatum long play? Like flip it over to the other side. Um, he's just monologuing, and he, you know he's bringing everyone in. Uh, and then you see that character completely fall apart. What do you know about Yogi Berra, Miss Deverish? I beg your pardon. Yogi Berra. Yogi? Why? It's a sort of religion, isn't it? You bet it is. A belief in the New York Yankees. You know what's wrong with New Mexico, Mr. Wendell? Too much outdoors. Give me those eight spindly trees in front of Rockefeller Center any day. That's enough outdoors for me. Those subways smelling sweet sour. It's almost like comparable to to what will become like a like a Walter White kind of character too, where like he's doing the wrong thing, but like for maybe the right reasons, because he's trying to succeed but he ends up only succeeding around the margins. And those are like the anti-heroes that will come to love, you know, 60 years later. Sure. And as long as the theme is right, and Kirk really cares about theme, as long as... It was so interesting. We were laughing in that uh, AFI tribute where he, for no reason, like signals <laughs> out Sly Stallone. And it's like, I was supposed to be in Rambo, but then I wasn't because at the end, like, they wouldn't let me kill Rambo, the monster I had created as like the general or whatever part he was supposed to play. <laughs> right. And he's like, even though it would have kept Stallone from winning a billion dollars, it still right. would have been more thematically sound. He just pulls off a lot of the noir lines in this movie so well, like the the thing where he's like, I've lied to guys wearing belts and I've lied to guys wearing suspenders, but I wouldn't <laughs> dare lie to a guy wearing both. How did and I like, know that you were going to bring this up? That's my one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um, but just the way he like talks to people and snakes around their logic to snap it and convince uh, whomever uh, that his own is sounder is like totally incredible. And he has that seduction 
about him that he can convince you, even this despicable dude, like he's going to pull this off and everyone's going to go about the wiser. A big part of the uh, anti-hero pathos is you're watching someone who's too smart not to know what they're doing. He knows that Leo is dying in there. And so like when you have the moments of him actually going to visit Leo, it's both like his most slime bally moments because he's just like you're gonna be fine but he, he cannot hide the fact that like he knows what he's doing he's keeping this guy in here while they drill from above the mountain because it looks better in photographs for no reason um and that's when he just like starts to starts to totally fucking fall apart it's a really good performance too because not only does douglas need to convince us he's like a sort of a con man worth rooting for like a danny ocean or something like that but he also can like has to convince this character that he is not dying when we kind of know i mean if you're kind of aware of like billy wilder's movies you kind of know that like he's fucked from the from the opening frame mm-hmm. um but yeah it's so interesting to that's the level of like the wattage of star power if you will on display is that he can convince you that he's going to keep this character that like the director is certain is going to die maybe alive and you're going to believe it up until his, he stops having a pulse that he can pull this off. That's true. And yet I think one of the things that makes this collaboration uh, more seamless than some of his other ones is that he's on the same page with Billy Wilder in terms of tone. There's an amazing bit of directorial tone management. The first time he goes down to see Leo, starts taking pictures of him and realizes that this guy's the story. Leo's very scared. So he like coaxes him into singing this song that they sang when he was a GI in World War II. And they're kind of like singing along and it seems like everything's going to be okay. And then he sort of like walks away and this like mm, a little snowfall of mountain sand falls down and you're like, no, this guy's fucked. And then an hour <laughs> later, he totally mirrors, Billy Wilder mirrors the same thing when they're at the table with the engineer and he tells him, no, go in through the top. Don't do the quick rescue. Do the showy rescue. And then he pours uh, a curtain of sugar into the guy's coffee in like the exact same spot on the screen. And that's just brilliant directorial mirroring. And also just like the sweet, the venomous, they're all like right next to each other. Absolutely. It also shows, I feel like this is a good movie, too, that shows what's good about Kirk Douglas's chin, is that, like, there's a lot of this movie that's, like, white guys covered with dirt, but you always know which one is Kirk Douglas by his (laughs) cleft chin, leading sort of like a a miner's light on the bottom of his mouth. That's hilarious. What a good observation. Um yeah. yeah, it's interesting the the movies here that are in black and white versus the ones in color. When you see him in Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea, you're like, Jesus, this guy really deserved to be in color because of his blonde hair and his tan. But he like did have that thing where it's like a lot of like thirties and forties like almost leading men like didn't need to be in color. They were just like tall, thin guys with well, black hair. I would argue too that Kirk Douglas looks better in black and white. Oh, really? And even especially when he gets older, he like starts to look pretty weird by like the day's, you know, understanding of what like a leading man and a man shot in color would look like. Okay. Like he's a little old in Spartacus. Like the fake tan shows a little bit in Spartacus. Oh, you think it's fake? 
I mean, it's definitely enhanced. By it's like asking if the 300 actors all were that ripped. Oh, I see. I think they put a little movie magic on him. Is that why my shredded chicken diet is not working? Oh, my God. Three Denver omelet and whiskey diet. (laughs) Catches up with you. Turns you from a triangle into a square. (laughs) I think that's the thing. Is everybody back then was just a geometric shape. Everybody was a geometric shape and you have to be one or the other and you can't be both. That's hilarious. If you're Peter Lorre, you could be circle. That's fine. If you're Charles Lawton, circle. I would agree with you that I think this is my favorite movie and thus... I will give it a good good. There is no ambiguity on Be Real. All movies can and will be classified by one of our four ratings. Good good, bad bad, good bad, and bad good. The first good or bad refers to sheer artistry. The second is pure entertainment. Good good is easy to explain. It's a movie that engages your inner art critic and brings you some form of happiness. For both reasons, you want to watch that movie again. Think Shawshank Redemption or Jurassic Park. (laughs) Or more recently, Get Out and Lady Bird. That we know of yet. Good Good Movies make Noah hyperbolically say, That was the best movie I've ever seen. Bad Bad is easy too. Movies that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just spent two hours wishing you could watch something else. Think of any musician turned actor who gave it a go in a Nicholas Sparks adaptation. I'll pass. Or many Nicholas Cage movie where he plays a wizard or a warrior. You are going to be a force for good and a very important sorcerer. Bad Bad movies make chance say, I hate so much that you made me watch that. Now, good, bad movies. Those we recognize as worthwhile in a cinematic sense, but don't necessarily enjoy. Think Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, or a Ward's Bait that hinges on a historical figure delivering an impassioned speech. I have given you my soul. Leave me my name! These kinds of movies make Noah say, But it was so boring. And then I remind him that at least Leo finally got his Oscar for crawling through all that mud. Conversely, bad good movies feed your thoughtless inner child. They're anything from flawed but charming Nancy Myers outings. I'm miraculously done being in love with you! To late career missteps like Al Pacino and Danny Collins. They're loud and silly, like Kurt Russell in Big Trouble in Little China, or Stargate. It's all in the reflexes. Bad good movies make me want to watch Tombstone, especially when Noah says, But didn't the Mighty Ducks just give you that warm holiday feeling? Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear two friends who watch movies for very different reasons talk about their taste like it's God's own truth. So a good good from no I agree this is also a good good. I think this is a fantastic movie. I'm so glad I got to watch it. And this is I'm just going to draw it back to my theory one more time. This is him playing against type while still totally aggrandizing the movie star presence. A lot of the other ones are just like going straight into type, but this is a great example of him being like, "Oh, I'm going to humble this character who is like larger than life and incredible and Kirk Douglas." <laughs> um okay, Bad and the Beautiful. What goes on in the private lives of the famous, the notorious? You will share the laughter and the tears of talented people who stop at nothing to attain success until success stops them. Of romantic people who fight for love until love whips them. 
thought you said you were going to get rid of her quick. Shut up and get back upstairs. If you are a gentleman, there is no justification for boorishness. You asked me how my work was going. What was I supposed to say? Great? Incidentally, who was that overgrown bullfighter you danced with all night? Don't talk like that about Georgia. Or Jonathan. He's a great man. <laughs> there are no great men, Buster. There's only men. So this is a Vincente Minnelli movie from 1952. You would know Vincente Minnelli from directing Mimi in St. Louis, An American in Paris, and being married to Judy Garland, being the father of and Liza Minnelli. That's right. This is a movie that is all about its structure and absolutely aggrandizes Douglas in such a notable way with that structure. I So I'm reading the IMDb summary which describes him as an unscrupulous movie producer uses an actress a director and a writer to achieve success and i think sure like on the face of it that's true the movie that actually unfolds is a noir about how this man made a deal with the devil to make all of his friends rich and famous but not have any friends himself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so what transpires is these sort of three short films about an actress about a director and about a writer who have an entanglement with him and some of them overlap in amusing ways and how that entanglement led to their ultimate success but you know the faustian bargain where it makes it look like kirk douglas himself is the devil the thing that this movie instantly reminded me of is i remember hearing years ago michael douglas sharing advice that his dad gave to him about like what makes for a good movie star part. And I think it applied to like Jewel of the Nile or something where it's like, you want to be the character who shows up in the second act after they, people have just spent the whole first act talking about him. And while the act breaks don't totally line up in this movie, it seems like this could be the movie that gave Douglas Kirk that idea of movie stardom because he is absent from the first 10, 15 minutes while they just have this conversation over and over again. Like Jonathan Shields, I hate that fucking guy's guts. Why is his office calling me? Like, I don't ever want to work with Jonathan Shields again after what he did to me. Um, and so you're just like, who's Jonathan Shields. Right. And here comes. Kirk. And then he shows up at the, Oh, we sort of, and then we, yeah, we flash back and then they, they, they do show up and then we right. flash back to this, this funeral. Barry Sullivan plays the director, Fred Emile. Lana Turner plays the actress, Georgia Lorison. And Dick Powell plays the author, James Lee Barlow. Can I tell you my favorite thing about the marketing and uh, of this movie? What's up, baby? The tagline of it is, Never a story so bold, never a cast so big. <laughs> That's the kind of studio thinking that continues today with movies like Valentine's Day. And New Year's Eve. This movie's cast is not that big. It really isn't that big, which is so <laughs> funny. Well, that's the interesting thing about this movie is because it is such blatant both criticism and myth-making around Hollywood. 100%. And like you'd maybe like to think that it's more self-effacing, but I don't really think it is. Nope, I don't think so either. <laughs> It really Um, does make the commentary that like the CD producer was allowed to do that thing because they a made great movies 
and B furthered other people's careers by negatively reinforcing the things they were most uh, attached to or afraid of. Do you think that perhaps this is a thing that doesn't hold up in the year 2020? I think it's a, it's a, perhaps a trope that doesn't pass the 2020 smell test as we would say. My God. (laughs) My God. (laughs) Take it easy. Take your time. If you're insinuating, <laughs> you're insinuating that film producers shouldn't be able to treat people however they want, whenever they want, in order to manipulate them for the glory of the pictures, I don't want to do a podcast with you. He espouses this kind of like profit of mov- the movie religion. Right. And this movie also is like a propaganda film for movies as a religion. Totally. Like, in the film, in that scene where he, Kirk Douglas, goes into Lana Turner's bedroom and, like, destroys all the objects that remind her of her father just so she'll, like, move past something and, like, deliver a great performance and be the star that she was destined to be, is, like, totally insane, like, by right. today's standards. Right. And if you look at it, if you do not believe the making of a motion picture is, a, like, a moral thing you need to do, then the, this movie does not really hold up. Right. I mean, and there's the scene where he, like, explains star power to Lana Turner is just the nakedest self-gratifying, like, self-building He's talking about himself. Of course. He's talking about things that people say about Kirk Douglas. (laughs) The camera pulls in on him so tight as he cracks a smile and says, when they're looking at the screen, they're looking at you. Pregnant pause. That's star quality. (laughs) It's like, come on. Yeah. Um, but it's very charming. The whole thing, you, I, I totally get what you're saying. Like, if you are not inherently charmed by this, this movie's not going to make a lick of sense. But because it's all about all of these people still loving the devil after what the devil did to them. Right. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's absolutely it. And then ultimately, not to spoil the movie, but it's ultimately left with that inception totem spin of do they then make another movie with him and you don't fucking know which is the craziest part about the whole thing yeah i wonder if i should have given that part a little more credit i i don't know tell so tell me do you think that that is a great touch or do you feel as i sort of did when the movie ended that like this movie doesn't have an ending like it's so married to that three-part structure is just like, well, wouldn't a more, I don't know, wouldn't a more rounded movie actually bring them back into the room with the humbled man? I think like the Billy Wilder version of this is a lot better and does involve seeing him later and seeing that he's either like cracked or that he's absolutely the same and, you know, having something interesting occur when they reconnect. Um, But this one, it does feel a little unfinished. Um, but I think it's to its benefit that it's it feels that way because I think whatever this particular film crew would have landed on for a more definitive ending certainly like would not be acceptable uh, 10, 20, 50 years later. I want to talk about Lana Turner in this movie because I think it's a wonderful performance. And I also am curious what you make of Kirk's connection with women on screen. Um, cause I really like that she is like a very game, funny, cynical figure when he encounters her and is also like, 
she's also like a beautiful mess. Like she's an alcoholic. She's having trouble. She doesn't uh, have the confidence to lock down a job that's being offered to her. The connection that they ultimately do have is the Jonathan character kind of like bottling his love love quote-unquote giving it to her for two weeks as a serum to get her through this and into her career and then pulling it back in the most awful of ways well congratulations you've got it all laid out for you so you can wallow in pity for yourself the betrayed woman the wounded doe with all the dribble that goes with it going through your mind right now oh he doesn't love me at all he was lying all those lovely moments those tender words he's lying he's cheap and cruel that low woman lila well, maybe I like Lilas. Maybe I like to be cheap once in a while. Maybe everybody does. Or don't you remember? I'm sure there are Kirk Douglas movies in the other 90 where it's just sort of like a boring conventional romance and he gets the girl and we're all good. But I think it's interesting that in three out of five of these in which he interacts with women co-leads, that his character is wrenched or wrenches himself away from love because, and this ties back to how much as a producer he cares about narratives, because like the character has to do the narrative. There are bigger fish to fry. We see him do that three different times in Ace and the Hole, the sort of would-be romance that does not pop off. We see it happen in this movie, and we see it happen in Spartacus. It is interesting how Kirk Douglas doesn't... He has a very like chaste persona for being such a strapping, handsome, leading man. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about, like, getting girls. Not a lot of getting girls. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, and this one only shows sort of negative relationships um, with women. I wonder what that is. That's a good point. Bad and the Beautiful? What do you think? I think it's a really, I mean, it's a really good part for him and does establish him as that movie star who can be dark but I don't know that it's a ton different from Ace in the Hole in terms of range. He's still doing that like Matthew McConaughey, we got to fire the German torpedo or we don't make this movie kind of charm. I, I would think it's say less it, range because he doesn't crumble. He doesn't really crumble. I mean, he has his moments when he like yells at somebody and then gets a little whatever. But yeah, it's in that same key. There's not as much range and... Ultimately, I don't think he is charming enough to re- like fully redeem this movie as a totem to movie mythology. So I'll probably have to give it like a good bad. Okay. I'll give it a good good. I, th- I think it is good. Um, I think that Ace in the Hole, as you said, is comparable and far more incisive. So, Yeah. All right. Um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. My old friend. I was so touched to hear that you wore out this VHS tape and then to realize that I had a deep connection with a movie that I'd never seen, Noah. Do you remember the Disney sing-along VHS tapes? Uh, for sure. Do you ever have one of those? Yeah, for sure. I, real, I used to run around the house singing Whale of a Tale. Incredible. Oh, but I didn't know it was from this movie. I didn't know it was Kirk Douglas. Um, yeah. But I still some nights will get I Swear in My Tattoo... Stuck in my head. God. 
about a whale of a tail to tell you lies A whale of a tail or two About the flopping fish and the girls I've loved On nights like this with the moon above A whale of a tail and it's all true I swear by my tattoo There was Mermaid Minnie Met her down in Madagascar She would kiss me Any time that I would ask her Then one evening her flame of love blew out Blow me down and pick me up, she swapped me for a trout. God, a whale of a tail, Certainly not the most feminist narrative uh, in that song. She swapped him for a trout, Noah. Well, she swapped him for a trout, but the way he describes uh, Harpoon Hannah. <laughs> uh, Are you suggesting that this movie with zero women in it is... Not well, the first feminist. one's bestiality because he was like sleeping with a, a an animal. The second one—you think a mermaid is an animal? Well, well I, if she swapped him for a trout, if that felt like the more natural mating partner, she's I clearly more animal. Wait for you to get canceled on Twitter this week for insinuating that mermaids are more beasts than man. It's definitely sixty forty. <laughs> The second one, she's clearly the captain's wife. Well, not clearly. That's sort of like the end of the dirty limerick of the song. (laughs) It's a definitely dirty limerick song. (laughs) But saying that, like, making love to a beautiful woman somehow makes you more qualified to kill a sea beast. Because if you've been through that, you can be through, go through anything. Uh, That's, it gave me pause. I never thought that you would sharpen your social justice harpoon for this movie, but here we are. No, it's uh, fine. Uh, <laughs> Kirk Douglas plays uh, Ned Land. Land. Yeah. Um, are people unaware of the what 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea is? I kind of was. Jules Verne. Classic Jules Verne novel. Yeah. What, mid-19th century? Mid-19th century. um, yeah, and the movie is a, a ship sent to investigate a wave of mysterious sinkings encounters the advanced submarine, the Nautilus, commanded by Captain Nemo. But yeah, so the movie opens up and they're... Where? San Francisco. San Fran- and they're in Frisco. It's Professor Aranax, played by Paul Lucas. Uh, Peter Lorre as his apprentice. I love Peter Lorre. Peter, Peter Lorre is incredible and so oddly formed he's a circle he kind of looks like x-men's juggernaut (laughs) can you imagine peter laurie delivering that sort of crass line from x3 i'm the juggernaut bitch (laughs) (laughs) oh man and then of course yeah kirk douglas is in town waiting for the next ship out and they like can't find a ride and so the u.s military the u.s navy is like hey Go find out if, like, what's sinking the ships is a monster or whatever. And, yeah, and then they go on this fun Disney little boat ride. Kirk Douglas does a song. The fact that he sings in the movie is very funny because he's absolutely not playing that guitar. Um, But this is I don't even think he's singing. (laughs) Oh, he's not. It's definitely dubbed, whether it's him or somebody else. The whole thing, the whole performance is dubbed, but he's still giving it his all. Can you imagine being on set that day? Um, This is, I think this is the goofiest, most thoughtless use of his star power. And in that way, it is like a very movie star movie. Um, 
because I actually don't think to kind of spoil one of my major problems with the movie. Like, I don't think the movie knows what to do to honor this character's star power in a movie that's not about this character. Yeah, I mean, it definitely is like a star turning role that puts him in a like family cinema space. But yeah, totally. it's not like a huge, it's not a huge role. But he does play it with sort of an interesting, like childlike goofiness to him. That perhaps is not the direction that James Mason was going. The two of them in this, they like, they repelled by each other. Like oh, James yeah. Mason is so baffled. Or maybe that's just part of his performance. But like anytime he's on screen, he's like, Mr. Land, stop eating with that knife. Utensils are to your left. <laughs> A brisket of blowfish. Basted in barnacles. His doing the aquatic menu is incredible. Um, the the aquatic menu is incredible the the monologue that he gives and just his like hand in the last 10 minutes of it is great good hand oh, yeah. acting my favorite line is professor you've carried your work as far as terrestrial science can take you yep terrestrial science i love i love the idea that there's like a you know a madman under the ocean who's just like oh, fucking land science what a load of what a load of dirt there may not be a lot to do for the actors, but like being part of a production this large, like just kind of thrusts that spotlight on you too. Like yeah. I would say Kirk Douglas acting with a fucking seal, like does more for his brand than like another Oscar nomination would. Totally. Well, this is, I mean like this is when he makes Scallywag in the seventies, like the Carson clip we were making fun of. Isn't that what that movie was called? That's right. Where he's the pirate. This is, this is what he's returning to. This is him like settling into the middle of. Well, they want a nautical we, picture, do they? <laughs> <laughs> Gone as far as terrestrial film can take me. Um, <laughs> um, this is probably the movie among these five that, like, if you're really going like his best, the most important, like you take this one out. But I think it's important to have this one in because it represents so much of his career. For sure. And I think, like me, means a lot to people of like a certain age who saw this like either as a kid when it came out or was given it like on VHS or now Disney Plus and by you their are parents. 67 years old. Is that right? Well, that's, yeah, I fall into the former category. Okay. <laughs> but this is also uh, like a huge, like, this is one of those like huge Marvel esque Disney like outrageous budget pictures of this moment this was like one of the most expensive movies made in this era at like almost a hundred million dollars like when you adjust Adjusted. for inflation yeah it was, it was nine million and i'm seeing here that it was the most expensive hollywood film today which i believe then gets broken by spartacus is that right or if there's oh, one God. in between spartacus then breaks that um i love these numbers that like don't make any sense in our modern box office uh, mathematics because milk costs 20 cents. <laughs> Movie tickets right. cost 20 cents. Everything's a nickel. Right. Um, How are you going to make $9 million in nickels? I mean, let's talk about the production value. Some of it still looks pretty cool. Um, some of it definitely does not. But I the steampunk production design of the Nautilus, and I flipped for the little rowboat that detaches, I think looks so cool. 
yeah, it's a cool design to that speaks. I don't it like it speaks to a certain intellectualism too of the way you're supposed to take Captain Nemo as like both a like a children's villain, but also like a I don't like this kind of con man his own right that I mean, those are kind of the movies that Kirk Douglas finds himself in, but now he's playing against him. He's almost trying to convince you that he's the voice of reason, saying that this man whose ideas seem so interesting is not actually the way we should be doing this. And I wonder if that is not a tiny Kirk Douglas with his little striped shirt saying, like, guys, let's not make movies that like where I can't play this role. Food is delicious, isn't it, Professor? Oh, very good. Never tasted better. There's a fork on your left, Mr. Land, or aren't you accustomed to utensils? I'm indifferent to him. May I ask how you are able to set such a table as this, Captain? These dishes come entirely from my ocean kitchen. There is nothing here of the earth. How remarkable. This tastes like veal. The flavor deceives you. That is filet of sea snake. Mason is really good at the... If you think about it, he's kind of just playing like underwater haunted mansion host a little bit. I mean, he literally has an organ. Um, and yeah, when they kind that's of... That's the finest thing. That's the most incredible thing on the the whole submarine. Looks amazing. And it does seem like James Mason is playing that organ in a way that Kirk Douglas could never play a sea turtle mandolin. I love all the shots in this movie of James Mason like sweatily doing anything. And like, Mm -hmm. it just like, it loves his eyes and it loves to like, just get that big old beard in the shot. It's so good. I think this movie has the fundamental problem that the protagonist of it is Paul Lucas's professor Aradax, who's like not the most interesting actor on screen. And like, he's, you don't really know much about him or his life or his family. Right. And he's like, so swayed by Nemo that just having Kirk Douglas on the other side is like, wait, he's the villain or is he the good guy? But I don't know. I think it's pretty forgivable just because of how fun, like how much fun everyone's having on screen and just how like hard someone's trying, especially James Mason, but even Kirk Douglas to like make this movie a movie. Sure. Sure. I got to say that Esmeralda, the seal is the most, Disney addition to a book that absolutely does not have a clapping trick seal in it. Um, I'd look again. I checked today. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give this puppy a bad good. I, I My conscience won't allow me to do that. Um, so I'm going to give this a good good. It's a childhood favorite. And if I needed to hashtag pick 10 movies that made me. I maybe put 20,000 leagues on there. Holy shit, that's a whale. You know how I love a nautical picture, Chance. Oh, you love nautical pictures. How many times do we think James Cameron watched this as a kid? All the times. As many times as I did. Sure. Do you think he had the same access? Probably not. Um, Was underwater any good? You saw that, right? It's not good at all. (laughs) Oh, man. Very bad. 
I'll watch it on HBO when it's on there. I only have, let's get real geeky for a second. I think there are only 12 movies on my 2020 list so far, but Underwater is last. <laughs> it's your... Uh... It's my after so far. Okay. Paths of Glory. Paths of Glory. Now we're getting into prestige filmmaking. Absolutely. Kubrick. So this is 1957. Kubrick was in his early... Oh, my God. Kubrick was 29 when this came out. 29. This is his first, like, real movie breakout, I would say. Yeah, because The Killing was not a hit. And this follows... This is a World War I picture. Just see 1917. We'll skip ahead to Spartacus. Just kidding. Um, After refusing to attack an enemy position, a general accuses his soldiers of cowardice and their commanding officer must defend them. So this is sort of like a... It's like 1917 meets... A Few Good Men. A Few Good Men. Yep. Precisely. With that kind of like Billy Wilder, black and white movie kind of morality to it. Yes. But directed by Kubrick. A madman. <laughs> a madman who was working kind of in service to a star. I, I definitely want to talk about like these Kirk and Kubrick basically went two rounds in three years, right? They did this and they did Spartacus. And this movie is so tight and cohesive and all heading toward the same point of light in a way that like, holy shit, Spartacus is not. And you can really feel it. Absolutely. This one is a lean, a mean lean 128, Mm. which Mm. is so good for a movie like this, where it's a little bit like the, it gets bogged down a little bit with like the world war one politics of it all. Sure. But when it like really picks up and starts to like a show some really good for its time war photography and B really like lean on how good this script is um i think it like it really kind of works in a way that if a star say like kirk douglas leans into chancy roles like this uh he could maybe have 20 more years of acting ahead of him in serious things but maybe he goes the way of spartacus and like that's the opposite me to suggest what you can do with that promotion. Colonel Dax, you will apologize at once or I shall be placed under arrest. I apologize for not being entirely honest with you. I apologize for not revealing my true feelings. I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man. And you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. This is a great World War I movie in the sense of the amount of political outside themes it's able to bring in without really making a show of it. Like, if you think of ni- this, of course, it made me think of 1917 a lot. Um, but 1917 is such a platonic, depoliticized war is hell movie, right? Because, like, their mission is just, like, save some guys, uh, run. You know, kind of use the time is the enemy. Yeah, use the exactly time is the enemy because like don't want to pick an actual, an actual enemy. Um, But this is a movie where there's so many different. You you basically see 
what you learn about World War One in history class, right? Which is just like it was the product of uh, royal families squabbling through a colonial era until they, you know, scarred up the ground and killed millions upon millions and millions of people. And you get that just from the conversation of the two French generals. George McCready plays Miro in an incredible He's incredible. Of He's incredible. gravitas and cowardice, the way he balances those are awesome. It's very, very good. Uh, he kind of looks a bit like George Hamilton, which is kind of funny. And he's got this great scar across his face, yes. too, which like so hints at this like past that he had as a warrior, like on more on the lines that really adds a depth to this role that it's like, well, this is not somebody who is wholly detached from war. And makes him feel like kind of like that Benedict Cumberbatch character from 1917 of like, he has reason, right? Because he's like seen the front lines, but ultimately like, that's not what this war is about. This war is about like settling petty grievances or something. And that's what this movie is kind of about, is the human cost of setting petty grievances, settling settling petty grievances. Absolutely. They're sent on the suicide mission because... uh, Miro is bribed with a promotion. Simple as that. Exactly. And then there's a series of cover-ups too when Miro is so angry that the third wave of a uh, three-wave attack that clearly does is not going to work from the opening moments of it, uh, he orders his own artillery to shoot at the third wave to either cause them to run out or to just kill them outright. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then there's a cover up for that behavior, which is sort of the thing that dooms the whole enterprise. The initial pushback from, you know, saner heads prevailing. But yeah. it, it sort of starts there, and you realize that, well, both as like a, a film goer and as like a student of history for this moment, that there is a satire at play here, both in the actual situation, but also in the way Kubrick is going to play with it yeah i don't it's not like a full-on satire but i totally know what you mean because i just watched dr strange love again fairly recently and he even though strange love is you know turned up 20 notches over this the way that blow hard you know fascistic military men talk and give orders and the way he directs it is inherently kind of funny because the whole thing is so hyperbolic. Yeah, like when people, when the initial order of to to shoot the third wave uh, that gets pushed back from the guy operating the actual machine, it goes back four times of them being like, nope, yes, no, yes, no, yes. And that's like so comedic, even though nobody on screen is playing it for laughs. Totally. But then it's kind of an interesting note that I think think gets it my bigger issue that like Kirk Douglas and uh, Stanley Kubrick maybe like shouldn't have worked together and maybe that they did work together kind of like doomed both what was at hand and also Kirk Douglas's career Mm. is the idea that he is not like the charming goofball at the center of this political satire he's the Tom Cruisean a few good men allegory right here he's or the, Daniel the, yeah he's the sort of with the the heart of gold 
uh, junior level commanding person. Right. I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure he's doing something that interests Kubrick in this movie. To speak to what you're talking about, I think that Kubrick would probably prefer to use a Kirk Douglas archetype the way he uses George C. Scott in Dr. Strangelove. But I think what Kirk gets out of this movie is that, again, he's letting the theme interact with him in a really great myth-building way because, like, he is a decent man. He is a good soldier. He, he, he leads the suicide charge. Now, he lives, but he was perfectly content to, you know, make the the objectors charge out of there. He tries to get them to go, and then he tries his best to defend them. All of this just looks incredibly honorable in the light of the... The, f- the failure of basically the whole story. Right. He look he's he's a martyr, so he ends up looking great. He is a martyr, he ends up looking he ends up looking great. And frankly, like the world around him does him a lot of favors because he's either like charging heroically through a battlefield or like looking great in a uniform in these like massive hotels and palaces that they're like having these tribunals in. Right. Which is also like something that Kubrick is very interested in. He is definitely interested in how removed some of the senior officers are from the front lines. Um, yeah, populated with some great supporting actors, too. Um, Wayne Morris, Richard Anderson, Joe Turkle, who ends up being Lloyd the bartender in The Shining, is... he. This is... I mean, it's very young Kubrick, but he does a great job of picking the most distinct-looking people to flesh out the scenes. For sure. There's also some great... Like I said earlier, there's some great like line level writing Mm -hmm. here that allows good actors to say like good things. Major, ready to kill more Germans? Incredible. And I love like the climactic monologue. The I apologize, sir, for not telling you sooner that you're a degenerate, sadistic old man, I think is such a good, and you can go to hell before I apologize to you now or ever again. Fucking goes for it. It's great. Sorkin will definitely look to this movie, I feel like in the way you build like because he loves to do that where you see like an action sequence but also the the fallout and how the bureaucracy sort of churns through it Mm -hmm. i think the thing that kind of sends it over the top and is so like really like made me work for it is like the last scene of the movie is presumably a kidnapped german woman is made to sing in front of all these french infantrymen and i really thought that something horrible was going to happen to her oh yeah it looked like the prelude to sexual violence it did and it ends up being a very surprising not to spoil the not very good movie judy but they end up singing with her to help get her through the song (laughs) which i was so like wow what a a very sentimental thing to be at the end of this stanley kubrick world war one movie but then the the best touch of it i think is just letting history do its thing they're going back. They're all going to die, including Dax. Right. That's like the joke of the whole movie is that like it's World War One. Like all these people are going to die. It doesn't matter if they're found guilty and shot by their own men today or put out in the first wave tomorrow. They're going to die. Brutal. It's just numbers. It was just a numbers game. Yeah. Uh, Kirk gets one little tear going. I, I love the way the end of the movie is kind of underplayed and just lets just lets the context be the twist okay did you also a good good from you on paths of glory i think paths of glory is definitely a good good from me so glad to be catching up with more kubrick here 
So for last, we save what is probably his most defining role. I guess, for better or worse. In the, in the Oscar montage, this is the one. Slaves you were, and slaves you remain. But the terrible penalty of crucifixion has been set aside on the single condition that you identify the body or the living person of the slave called Spartacus. I'm Spartacus! 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 This is 1960. He's coming back to work with Kubrick again. Or rather, he hires Kubrick onto the production after firing wonderful Western director Anthony Mann a couple weeks into the shoot. I couldn't figure out why he was so pissed at Anthony Mann or why it wasn't working out. I didn't see that. There wasn't much in the salt mine scenes that gave away anything about their artistic dispute. Right. So if people don't know this, the, oh, the tale of Spartacus. Um, <laughs> the slave Spartacus leads a violent revolt against the decadent Roman Republic. Boy, is it ever. Um, is Spartacus like a historical figure? So he's a gladiator. I knew that part. I just watched a three and a half hour movie about it. <laughs> he's a gladiator about a hundred years BC, okay? So you've got the Roman Republic in swing, and you have the sort of pre-Caesar um, dissolution of the Senate. Basically, you have um, Charles Lawton plays Gracchus, and you have the the full bureaucracy of the Roman Senate at work and trying to figure out whether um, the people who are referred to as the dirty mob over and over again will have some ability to govern themselves <laughs> through democracy or whether Laurence Olivier will just uh, march his personal army of troops into Rome and murder all the poor people. That's the... Uh, and slavery is rampant. Roman Empire... So that's the historical moment we're in. Spartacus existed and led a rebellion. Beyond that, I cannot say it was a true story. So I guess this is obvious, but what attracts a 44-year-old like movie star to a role like this, which is parenthetically sort of the climax of his career, I would say? Uh, the chance to like absolutely cement his stardom and place in Hollywood history. Like I think he sensed the moment. Is it, was it the same call that Colin Farrell heard when he signed up to do um, <laughs> Oliver Stone's Alexander? <laughs> Oliver Stone's Alexander. <laughs> Probably. Um, I wonder who had a better working relationship, Oliver Stone and Colin Farrell or Kubrick and Kirk Douglas? I'm unclear. Unclear. But this movie thinks it's the goddamn Ten Commandments, though. Like, it starts with that same sort of prologue... Um, opening number in the dark and then yeah. opens to act one which is a very like biblical cecil b demillion 
mythologizing of this Roman character all played by Americans and Brits. Kirk is scrapping for his own sword and sandals epic when he acquires the Howard Fast novel. Like, absolutely, he is looking for the, like, the, oh, I'm going to top the top thing in Hollywood at this time. So, right from the beginning, I think the disagreements and the clashes in the movie are interesting. I also think they speak to the things that, uh, I've never seen this movie before, so I was going in with a pretty open mind. Things that don't quite work about it. Spartacus doesn't say like anything for the first half an hour of the movie you're right yeah his she does the chin talk yeah chin is talking real loud and there's a goofy narration at the beginning where it's like this is spartacus like like 1960 (laughs) record scratch meets look at him there there's spartacus and all slavery um But I think that that voiceover is in there because there's no characterization to the man, basically. And then you go and read about it, and Kirk Douglas is pissed because Kubrick cuts out all of his dialogue in the first half hour. Oh, that's incredible. (laughs) So that's great. Um, There are moments, to that point, there are definitely moments in the movie where you can feel Kubrick being bored and or antagonistic toward how conventional the heroism in the story is. Right. And he also gets kind of bored with like the people talking at each other scenes because you can tell that some of them he just fucking loves. Like the one where uh, Lawrence Olivier and Kirk Douglas are there. He's given him the silent treatment outside when they're about to be cru- fight and then crucified. Yeah. And he's having so much fun with light and like the distance of the camera moving in and out. Fuck yeah. And then sometimes it's just like Charles Lawton's fat ass just like getting rolled around a steam room. <laughs> yeah, that's true. There's also there's a really notable moment where is it? Um oh right before the intermission break. Um Spartacus is rallying the troops and says to everyone like that's it. We're marching south. And like right as the speech is hitting a fever pitch, Kubrick like pulls all the way out onto the crowd, like kind of oddly far away from Spartacus. And it's less of a like uh, bathe in the scope of his leadership and more of a like, I'm not going to let Kirk have this moment of just rallying right. these people. He's bored with it. It is a little critical in that how much it pulls out, you know? Yeah. But it does feel like at every turn, this movie wants to be like the Kirk Douglas presents Spartacus. <laughs> it basically is. Did you find the tone to be sort of uneven? The tone is sort of uneven. I mean, I really, the script writing. So actually, hold on. Let me back up for one second. Here's my thing with this movie. It reminds me of like a lot of like B to B plus epics I see where it's like, oh, there's like 50 good things and 30 bad things. Like it's very (laughs) hard to make sense of like the amount of stuff you've seen. So when you go to the Charles Lawton, Lawrence Olivier battling for the governmental spirit of Rome, you can feel that Kubrick is kind of deactivated, but Dalton Trumbo is super activated and... Olivier and Lawton and Peter Ustinov are fantastic in this movie. Like, they are chewing that dialogue. They are great. It's a different... It seems like it's existing in an entirely different movie, though. 
Yeah. No, I think there is a good movie about the political stratagem and the weird vices, as they say in this movie, of these men charged with, you know, dealing with this humongous country with whatever amount of wealth it has at this time. And like that is funny and it is sort of tongue in cheek. And I've seen critics, some critics make like reads on this movie where it was like decades and decades ahead of its time showing like a queer relationship in the Tony Curtis and Lawrence Olivier characters. Yeah. Do you like oysters? Do you like oysters? What about snails? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But for a movie that's otherwise like not that daring or interesting or even like coherent. (laughs) Well, yeah, because then you cut back to Spartacus and you can't help but feel that like he's a simpleton and so is his half of the story. He is a simpleton. Spartacus in love now. Which Spartacus hungry. (laughs) I could see. I (laughs) All the shots of Spartacus are like meat being cooked and then like Spartacus making out with his wife and being like super pumped and then Spartacus fighting and then it goes back to Lawrence Olivier like acting his tail off. Peter Ustinov just like Kraken wise, like the Seth Rogen of this movie or something. <laughs> We're being a little hard on it. Um, certain parts of the epic work really well. I think all the stuff in the gladiator training part is entertaining and kinetic and sad. And I like that. And the, when he ultimately like drowns that guy and that gruel, I love that <laughs> shit. That was pretty good. I liked the part where they pulled off like what you thought were just like the wooden things that were spinning around to like cut them down in the knees and in the neck. Yeah. But there are also like blades in there too. Like that was very, it's pretty badass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of movie here. And so one of the things that happens so much too movie. is that there are a lot of repeating beats as well. So at one moment you'll feel the Trumbo script find a million dollar way to say something like when they're asking, when Spartacus is about to march on the army of the guy who's given the the Roman command and that guy's not remotely ready for him. He rallies the troops and they're like, do you really think we can win? And he says, well, when the free man fears death, he fears losing the pleasure of life. And when a slave is confronted with death, like he has only pain to lose. Which you can feel Trumbo in his bathtub being like, "This is the fucking line right here, baby," and he's right. Um, except that then, that's not as good as any of the or the other five ways in which the script later tries to say the same thing over the next two hours are not as good. I really do like Olivier. He's fantastic in the scene at the end, where he's questioning. Verinia as to like what hold does Spartacus actually have over people like please explain his cult of personality to him and Olivier is so great in the scene because he actually is kind of tipping his hand a little bit you can see that he's kind of scared you can see that he needs to know because he's about to go back and try to like you know wield this senate and he doesn't know how to do it unfortunately the script then has Verinia be like you're scared of him you want to know for your own means which is like you don't have to say it but the acting is amazing But didn't you feel like that scene, I mean, and especially since we're doing it in this sort of appraisal of both Hollywood and an actor lens, don't you think that scene is kind of like Olivier asking the audiences, 
why will um, like adult cinema die in the future? But like Kirk Douglas, people like that, they will live on. Like, what do you find so charming about that? Tell me why Americans love Americans so much and why I, Laurence Olivier, will not be the Hollywood film star. You know, me sure. and James Mason are not, uh, are not long for this, this new realm of stardom. It is kind of cool that in his acting career, Kirk Douglas did get to work with a lot of like absolute legends. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of way better actors in his, you know, that he's collaborated with. That's true. But not Sylvester Stallone. No. What else about Spartacus? Anything else about Spartacus? Wait, can I ask a personal question? Please. You Spartacus, bro? I'm Spartacus. Yeah, okay, great. All right. That now- scene was pretty nice. Yeah, it's always weird, though, when, like, you know a super iconic scene from a movie you've never seen, and you're like, when's it going to pop up? And then it always kind of, like, rushes up onto you, and you're like, oh, God, we're here, and then it's over. They should have done that slower. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You always want to redirect famous scenes and, like, do them better. Always seems slower in the Oscar montage. So I think that Spartacus, I'm definitely glad to have seen it. Like, you got to... If you are like a call yourself a cinephile, you should probably see Spartacus at some point. I think this is a pretty easy good bad though. Like the the technical ambition and the scope is off the damn charts and you clearly have some of the most talented people of the era realizing and sensing their moment. Um but the finished product I think there's like a I think there's a reason that yeah, we don't talk about sword and sandals epics like nobody's writing like think pieces on like what this movie has to say in it's like naughty prescient way is this um there's nothing in, like that in spartacus spartacus is bernie sanders of his time i think Gracchus is the bernie sanders of his time touche that's right see that'd be a more interesting movie though seeing how Roman politics at the end of that empire played out very similarly to American politics at the end of ours. Whatever. This movie's kind of boring. Felt like homework to watch. I'll give it a good bad out of respect. Okay. So, Man from Snowy River, 1982. A young Australian man... What? We did not watch that together. That's just a movie you've seen. Okay. You know that Kirk Douglas plays two roles in that movie? He's double cast. He's double Maybe cast. Maybe that was the biggest movie that he did. That see? It's a horse picture. Noah. I feel like it's only fitting to ask you, how long would you like to live? Is it more or less than 103 years? It's definitely way, way less. Okay. Uh it may be like 40 years less. Except your lifetime achievement award. And then Put yourself on the ice flow. A metaphor that sadly will probably have no currency by the time we're that old. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, rest in peace, Kirk Douglas. Uh, I'm glad we watched these movies. I hope we did a decent job of assessing a career that both like, I don't know. It doesn't like cry out to be assessed, but because it's just kind of sitting there in that sort of like, golden god golden era way it was very fun to go back to and like look at all the history that intersected 
Absolutely. And some really talented people around him too. Uh, definitely like one of the last great examples of people from that time who were still around. Until next time, my friend. I'm proud to be a member of our profession. Proud to receive this award. I thank you all for being here tonight. My wife, Anne, who deserves 75% of this award. My four sons, Michael, Joel, Peter, and Eric, who make me proud, but especially my grandson, Cameron, who gave up baseball practice to come all the way down here from Santa Barbara to watch them give the old man a pat on the back. Thank you very much. Thank you.